The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Stocks trying to avoid a five-day losing streak as CEO sentiment across the country turns decidedly sour. Futures are mixed. China easing COVID controls once again as Beijing bends the pressure from protesters over its year-long COVID-0 strategy. Democrats extending their lead in the Senate after yesterday's Georgia runoff election. What the two-seat majority could mean for President Biden's economic agenda. Plus, housing uncertainty as one of the country's top home builders casts a dark shadow on an otherwise upbeat earnings report. And later, BlackRock's Larry Fink facing activist pressure over his firm's ESG initiatives. We've got the full story ahead. It is Wednesday, December 7th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. I'm Seema Modi at CNBC Global Headquarters. Brian Sullivan live in the Netherlands as part of his week-long series on Europe's energy crisis. And Brian, you've got a great live shot today. Yeah, and you know, today is going to be all about the future. Let's call it, Seema, renewables, right? We talk a lot about hydrogen. You've probably heard a lot about hydrogen. But what exactly is hydrogen except for the most common element in the universe? Well, we're going to talk about how Shell here at this multi-billion dollar facility Maybe not the first of its kind, but certainly the biggest of its kind, the most expensive of its kind, and maybe a model for what the U.S. and other companies and countries around the world are going to be doing with renewables. This facility that we are at, the by the way, is also an oil refinery, the biggest in Europe, is being converted to what they call green hydrogen. We're going to talk about what, what exactly that is. You hear gray, you hear blue, you hear green. We're going to lay that out and also talk about why hydrogen maybe really the fuel of the future because yeah we talk a lot about renewables solar wind etc but as we all know the sun doesn't always shine the wind doesn't always blow and that governments and people they need power that is going to be reliable and on full time and kind of like a natural gas or any other kind of a molecule physical molecule hydrogen is uniquely able to do that there's been a lot of talk about hydrogen of course from an investing standpoint shell putting their money where their mouth is. We'll talk about it more all throughout the hour here from uh, the biggest facility of its kind in the world. Seema. Excited to learn more. That's Brian Sullivan. Much more from him in just a moment. But first, a look at how futures are faring at this moment. Take a look at where we're looking at pre-market. Dow Jones down about 29 points. Nasdaq is lower by 30. If we take a look at what's happening in the bond market, yields have been well below 4%. And here the 10-year note, slightly higher, but holding on to 3.52%. That is the yield. If we take a look at energy, oil prices over the last couple of days have been inching higher. Brent crude uh, currently down 1.6% at $78 a barrel. Cryptocurrencies, let's take a check there at Bitcoin and Ether. You'll see we're down just fractionally for Bitcoin by eight-tenths of 1%, below 17,000. Ether at 1,229, down nearly 2%. 
Let's go around the world. In Asia, stocks in Hong Kong leading the losses, shedding more than 3 percent. Losses across the rest of the region are much more muted. And taking a look at the early trade setup in Europe, France, the FTSE 100, UK, Germany, all trading in negative territory. Let's get back to Asia and a major developing story overnight in China. Pippa Stevens is here with more. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning, Seema. And that's right. The China COVID zero policy U-turn continues. Beijing announcing the most sweeping changes to its strategy overnight since the start of the pandemic three years ago, a strategy that's hobbled the world's second largest economy. Among the 10 new guidelines, China says asymptomatic COVID cases and people with mild symptoms can now quarantine at their homes without reporting to an area hospital, which is a major move that could lead to fewer citywide lockdowns and a sign the country is preparing its people to live with the disease. Elsewhere, Pinterest says it's reached a deal with Elliott Management after the activist investment group offered up ideas on how to improve operations at the company. As part of the agreement, Elliott portfolio manager Mark Steinberg will join Pinterest's board. And Apple is reportedly scaling back its autonomous electric car plans and delaying its release date until 2026. According to Bloomberg, the project, codename Titan, has been in a state of limbo for months on the realization the plan is not currently technology feasible. The report adds Titan is being reworked to include a a steering wheel, pedals and more restricted self-driving tech. Seema? Great. We'll see you very soon. Thank you. Back to the markets and stocks, uh, extending their losing streak yesterday. The S&P 500 posting its fourth negative session in a row as investors appear to further lose hope that the Fed will be able to engineer a soft landing. Joining me now is Craig Johnson, chief market technician at Piper Sandler. Craig, it's always great to see you. Thank you, Seaman. Good morning. Good morning. We we are just days away till the next Fed meeting, I guess, next week. We also have a CPI print. How are markets, uh, when you look into the internals, how are they trading? Well, Seema, the markets have been actually pretty strong. When you look at the internals of the market, they've been pr- improving coming off of the uh, the October lows. We've been seeing the number of stocks uh, improving in terms of market breadth, stocks above their uh, 50, 200-day moving averages. We've actually been seeing also an expansion in the number of stocks that are making 26 new, 26-week new highs, Seema. But the challenge is for a lot of investors, there is such a negative viewpoint and perspective coming into the end of the year that most investors are short. And so at this point in time, Seema, the pain trade is higher. And so if we get some economic data that comes out next week, that's going to be sort of below expectations in terms of inflation. I think this market's got a real shot to take another hop higher in here. What is the correlation these days between uh, stock, the stock market and, and economic data? Because I know it can really vary depending on where we are in, in an economic cycle. Well, Seema, good news is uh, in terms of the economic numbers uh, at this point in time is sort of bad news because the perception among most investors right now is that if the economy stays stronger for longer, then the Fed is going to have to continue to keep raising rates and uh, that terminal rate would ultimately have to go higher. But I think the most interesting thing to think about in this market, though, is what's been happening with the secular change in 10-year bond yields. Uh, It's been a 40-year downtrend reversal. A lot of investors are expecting inflation to be higher and but but when you come back and you look at rates we think they could actually be coming down and perhaps go as low as three to three and a quarter in 2023 which i think would ultimately be a catalyst for equity markets 
Yeah, unpack that, that point you just made there, because some confusion around, yes, the terminal rate may be headed higher, 5 6% if you look at the Fed fund futures rate. Yet where we're trading now uh, at 3.5%, does that make sense to you? Well, I think what it's telling us is that the Fed's activities are really actually starting to have an impact. And I think a lot of investors sort of look at the forward sort of expectations uh, of where rates are going to be through 2023. And it looks like that you could see uh, the end of the rate hikes by the time you get to mid-2023 and perhaps even see some cuts again. That's not my viewpoint. That's just what the market has sort of been priced in at this point in time. Four weeks left in the year. I can't believe it. What sector do you think is best positioned going into the end? Well, into the end of the year and into 2023, we actually just upgraded here this morning uh, the industrial sector, financials. We took technology from an overweight to a neutral, and we also downgraded healthcare from an underweight to a neutral. So right now into 2023, seem I would say stay overweight energy be overweight financials, and be overweight industrials. And I think the big long-term theme to think about in 2023 is really going to be the reshoring trade. In stocks like Rockwell Automation, mm-hmm. Johnson Controls are going to be really well-positioned, we think, in the year ahead. Great. Uh, Craig, we covered, we covered all bases. Thank you for joining us. That's Craig Johnson. All right, Thank when you. we come back, much more on China's COVID policy shift and the long road is still ahead. Plus, an exclusive look at Europe's energy crisis. And one fuel shell is hoping could be the answer to an entire continent's problems. And later, BlackRock on the defensive over its controversial ESG policies. We've got a very busy hour still ahead on Worldwide Exchange. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clearer at 5 years. At one year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back. And a quick market flash. Market flash. Take a look at shares of GSK uh, up sharply, as you can see in London. The company, formerly known as GlaxoSmithKline, defeating thousands of lawsuits claiming the heartburn drug Zantac caused cancer. A U.S. federal judge finding the claims were not backed by sound science. GSK and other marketers of the drug, including Pfizer and Sanofi, still face similar lawsuits in state courts. But there you go. GSK up 8%. 
Let's stick with Europe in our week-long coverage of the continent's energy crisis. Our Brian Sullivan joining us now from the Netherlands with a look at one technology that Shell is hoping could really be the fuel for the future, Brian. Seema, I'm a lot older than you are, and I don't, I don't know the last time you did basic chemistry. I think I was sitting at a desk with a Ticonderoga number 2 lead pencil getting a C-. minus. So I'm not going to pretend to understand everything that is happening at this massive Shell facility in the Netherlands behind us. But what I can tell you is what the goal is, okay? And the goal is to create hydrogen as a potential fuel of the future. Now, this plant is taking natural gas and is effectively stripping out carbon dioxide over here, hydrogen over here. The hydrogen then goes through a lot of these pipes and will be used for feedstocks and ultimately for fuels. Literally, in other words, you might have an 18-wheeler truck, you might have a car, you might have a giant ship on the ocean that will be filled up with hydrogen, of course, those companies aren't going to build hydrogen-powered cars and trucks until they know they have the supply of the fuel. That's why they have this multi-billion dollar plant. By the way, Shell is building another one of these, slightly different though. They're going to literally take the H out of the H2O. They're going to take the hydrogen out of the water at a different facility that they're building here. Last time I checked, there was a lot of water on the planet. So they're using this as kind of this renewables model, and they're investing billions of dollars a year. So how much? Well, we had the opportunity to speak with Marianne Van Loon. She is the head of Netherlands for Shell. And Shell has made a commitment that they are going to be using, by the way, money from oil and gas to build out the technologies of the future. Listen. I think on a global scale, Shell Group invests about a third in, uh, say, the newer energy systems. In uh, 2025, that will be 50%. But here in the Netherlands, we're uh, a bit ahead of the pack. And uh, we invest already uh, two billion U.S. dollars a year in the new energy systems. And we are uh, targeting to keep up. All right. So look at this graphic. There's a lot going on here. Kind of looks like a rainbow. But you look at the bottom levels. You got coal. You've got natural gas. You've got nuclear as the power sources for Europe. We're talking about the transition, Seema. But let's be perfectly honest and, and realistic with ourselves. Right now, the bulk of power is being generated by hydrocarbons and molecules like natural gas. Shell, and by the way, others, are going to be taking profits from the traditional business and building out the renewable side of the business. This, a multi-billion dollar investment. So much excitement around hydrogen. There are two industrial companies I cover, Cummins and 3M. They're both specializing in electrolyzers that are used in the process of, of, of sort of producing hydrogen. Uh, but is it all hype? I mean, when do we get to a point where hydrogen is actually a, a fuel we can use? I know the U.S. also announcing a new deal with the U.K. in a bid to sort of help with its energy problems. Yeah, you got two things going on there. Okay, number one, you know, we're going back to the future here, I think, Seema. The first electrolyzer, you mentioned electrolyzer. I took the under, so you win that bet. The first electrolyzer, if I'm right, was built in 1888. This is in many ways not a new technology. Neither is the wind, by the way. In fact, we talk about wind power. I think the Netherlands is known for, like, windmills back in the day, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. So we're kind of going back to the future there. What you referenced, by the way, breaking news, uh, and this goes back to our coverage yesterday. This morning, the U.S. and the U.K. announced the big new energy partnership deal. It involves doubling U.S. LNG shipments to the U.K., U.K. more desperate for gas than maybe any nation in the European area. So this morning, the Biden administration going really all in again on fossil fuels, making a deal to double LNG exports from the United States to the U.K., also talking about promoting nuclear. So U.S. power, 
U.S. gas SEMA really in demand over here, at least until the, the hydrogen is done. Brian, I wonder if you can just reflect on uh, back to hydrogen, the, the level of interest in this clean fuel. Obviously, great interest anywhere you go, I imagine, around the world. But in Europe specifically, given how vulnerable they are on the energy front, is that increasing demand, interest in hydrogen? It is, but it's, but it's expensive. I mean, and, and Shell has said we're taking billions of dollars, what, one third of their global money, and putting it into new technologies. The big fight is this, Simi, think about the irony. The fossil fuel companies are really the only ones that have the available capital to build out the new technologies. You got other people that'll say, well, wait a minute, why should the fossil fuel companies, they're to blame, don't let them get into the energy transition game because it's their fault that we have to transition because of climate change and increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, but Mm -hmm. Shell and Exxon and Chevron and many others, they're the ones that generate the income and the revenue and the profits, SEMA, that might fund these facilities. Because look at this. I mean, again, I have no idea what's happening in here, (laughs) but it's expensive. And it takes a lot of brain power, a lot of power, human power and human capital and just capital capital. And that's why we have you on the ground. You're our ultimate brain power. Brian Sullivan, see you very soon. Brian Sullivan in Netherlands, still on deck. Your big money movers and shares of one stock surging ahead of the open. This morning's mystery chart revealed when Worldwide Exchange returns. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clear at 5 years. At one year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Time now for your big money movers. Three top stock stories of the morning. And first up is MongoDB. Shares of the database platform surging after the company posted better than expected revenue for the third quarter and issued upbeat fourth quarter revenue guidance. Shares right now up 27%. Next up, Dave & Buster's. Shares are dropping despite reporting a better than expected revenue and earnings that were in line with estimates. The company noting, though, that walk-in comparable store sales did decrease by more than 2% compared to a year ago. Shares right now down nearly 3%. And lastly, Toll Brothers. Shares of the home builders slightly higher following yesterday's top and bottom line beat. The company also exceeding Wall Street expectations for home sales revenue after strong pricing and its backlog uh, helping sustain margins for the fourth quarter. CEO Douglas Yearly Jr. warning, however, that, quote, many home buyers are on the sidelines.
waiting for clarity on the direction of mortgage rates and the overall economy. Toll Brothers expecting to deliver less homes for the fiscal year. Stock down about 36% year-to-date. Let's stay on Toll Brothers' results and talk a little bit more about what it means for the housing economy. Joining me now is Ken Leon, Director of Equity Research at CFRA. Ken, always it's great to see you. I mean, hearing Toll Brothers' CEO talk about how homebuyers are on the sidelines, I guess we should expect that given rising rates, but how long will that last? That, that's the big question. And for companies like Toll, it's a question is you have to feed the, be- the beast, which is... Uh, bring in new selling communities. They want to get by the end of next year to 380 from like 330. Uh, yet new orders were down 56% in the reported quarter and their backlog was down 7%. And that really is the engine that drives construction and home deliveries. So we're going to see a much slower year ahead for Tull and many of the home builders. But as you point out in your note, if you look across the United States right now, there are still certain pockets that are seeing strength. Is that right? A little bit of strength, and that's mostly in the South. And uh, that's partly because of the appeal for employment, uh, maybe for taxation. Um, but, you know, for toll, uh, a significant part of their revenues come from the higher average selling prices of, of the Pacific region. And that was down 76% partly because of lower demand and partly uh, because they still need, they need to replenish selling communities and get them ready so they can sell more homes. Yeah, because the long, for the longest time, the issue was there was just a lack of inventory. Now you have more inventory coming online. Or I should, add, I should pause there. Ken, are you hearing uh, that construction is, is being delayed, halted, I guess half-made homes because we're just waiting to see when the buyer will come back in? So builders are very good at kind of taking their foot off the pedal. And and basically what drives the business is price and pace. Pace has slowed down significantly, as noted. So then they have to they're they're going to create incentives, which is on pricing to bring them back Uh, for the National Association Home Builders Association. Over 35 percent of home builders are already doing price incentives. Ken, here's a question for you. You know, I track a lot of the international tour uh, travel activity, and right now we're still not seeing that foreign tourists come back to the U.S. in the way that we saw pre-pandemic, right? I'm wondering how that's impacting home prices in some of the big cities uh, like New York and Los Angeles that in the past have played, have been very attractive to, that, to the Chinese, to the European um, high-income consumer. It's a great question, and, and that Harvard University Joint Center of Housing points that immigration has fallen off significantly really over the last five or six years. That's critical really as a component of new buyers, but also it's important for our U.S. economy as it relates to productivity and filling the low job participation rate. Top stock in the home building space, which name do you think will do well in 2023? We're right now neutral to negative. So one of the scenarios, and the stocks have done well, really, since early October. They're up anywhere from you know 12 to 18%. But it's the scenario that will the second half of calendar 23 be crossing the valley to a more optimistic, improving economy and the Fed not raising rates or cutting rates? Our view is that's a leap of faith talking here in December as we go into recession 
and a very weak first half of next year, i.e. for Toll Brothers, 56% down on net order value. Wow. I guess we just have a couple of months or or more to kind of get through this period and then perhaps um, some brighter days ahead. Ken, I I learned a lot. Thank you for joining us today. That's Ken Leon from CFRA. Straight ahead, why my next guest is not discouraged by some souring CEO sentiment. We've got Jenny Harrington coming up with some stock picks to make in your portfolio right now. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you missed Worldwide Exchange, don't worry about it. We got you covered. Spotify, Apple, other podcast apps. We will be right back. Stocks are looking to put a stop to their slide as worries grow around the Fed's ability to engineer a soft landing. Right now, futures are lower, but developing overnight. China further easing rules around COVID as officials in Beijing look to pivot from highly restrictive controls around the virus. We are live in Beijing with the latest. And ESG backlash as BlackRock's Larry Fink facing a new call to resign over claims of hypocrisy around his firm's sustainability commitment. Wednesday, December 7th. Good morning. We're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi at CNBC Global Headquarters. That's Brian Sullivan standing by at a Shell refinery in the Netherlands. We'll get much more from Brian in just a moment, but let's pivot our attention to the market right now, where pre-market trade suggests stocks will open lower for the day. The Dow Jones currently down about 59 points. At the start of the show, we were down about 30. Nasdaq is lower by 44 points, and the S&P 500 yesterday registering its fourth day of losses. So can this market turn around? Uh, let's take a look at bond, the bond market where yields have been spreads, I should say, have been narrowing the 10 year yield at 3.5 percent. Take a look at the two year, which is much more sensitive to what the Fed does at 4.35 percent. Uh, draw your attention to oil, which we've been fixating on, given the OPEC decision over the weekend. Uh, now down about one percent. Brent crude holding on to seventy eight dollars a barrel. Nat gas is higher by nearly four percent. Let's get a check on the morning's top stories. What's going to drive market action? Pippa Stevens here with those. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Seema. Well, Democrats landing a major victory with Georgia's Senate runoff election. NBC News is projecting that Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock has defeated his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, in that contest. Warnock's projected victory gives Democrats a 51 to 49 majority in the Senate and also cements a much better than forecasted midterm election for President Biden. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is facing calls to resign over accusations of hypocrisy over the firm's focus on ESG issues. The UK-based investment firm Bluebell Capital Partners releasing its letter that it sent to Fink last month. Bluebell, which holds roughly $250 million in assets and is known for waging campaigns against prominent companies, argues that BlackRock had changed positions several times on investing in thermal coal production, in contrast to Fink's widely publicized sustainability commitments. And Microsoft's president is reportedly heading to Washington to try and get the company's $69 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard cleared. According to the New York Post, Brad Smith will meet with members of the FTC, including Chair Lena Khan, today in a last-ditch effort to keep the deal alive. The Post adds the FTC's commissioners are expected to hold a closed-door meeting tomorrow to discuss the merger with the potential for a vote on it. Meanwhile, Microsoft announcing a 10-year agreement with Nintendo to bring the popular Call of Duty franchise to Nintendo's gaming platforms. But Microsoft says that deal hinges on its closing its Activision deal. A lot of moves to watch here, Seema. 
stocks uh, moving in opposite directions at this hour. Pippa, thank you. Now to developing story in China. Officials in Beijing announcing the most sweeping changes to that country's zero COVID policy since the pandemic began. The move potentially leading to fewer citywide lockdowns that have crippled the world's second largest economy. CNBC.com's Evelyn Chang joining us now from Beijing. Evelyn, it's nice to have you on the show. Can you just lay out the policy changes that we're seeing from leaders over there? Sure. Thanks, Seema. Great to see you. Today, we got some big changes, especially on eliminating really the need to show a negative virus test when you're traveling across the country. Also, a widespread a statement saying you don't need to show your health code when you're traveling or entering many facilities in China. But they did say if you're entering a retirement home or elementary or middle schools, you still need to show some of these proofs that you are not positive for COVID. Uh, but just generally, it seems like things are really moving in this reopening direction. Also, importantly for factories and for businesses, they're saying that if you're not in a high risk area, which is basically means like a building or a unit in the building, you are must keep production. The local authorities can't tell you to stop. So that'll be really helpful for businesses to keep operating. But again, all this comes down to what does the local implementation look like? And I think people on the ground are just trying to figure out how do we mo- move forward from here. Evelyn, it seems like now every week uh, we are getting a new restriction lifted uh, across China. I think the big question for the market is when do we see a full reopening in China? When can people like yourself go to uh, a restaurant and dine indoors and not have to show a negative COVID test and not have to wear a mask? I think we're quite a ways from not having to wear a mask, but perhaps in terms of showing a negative virus test, I'm hopeful in the next couple of days in, in Beijing, maybe that will really be the case. And I think you know, we have Taishin reporting that they're really trying to get the vaccination rate for elderly people, especially those over age 80, really up to speed by the end of January, that sort of Chinese New Year. Uh, so some analysts are hoping it, that maybe in March, We'll start to see real changes on the ground in terms of reopening, maybe even reducing those uh, quarantine times for international travelers. But I think as the authorities emphasize today, what's going on right now is not a full reopening. They're focusing on optimizing the measures, making them more targeted and specific, allowing more people to quarantine at home. But this is really going to be a slow unwind of all the restrictions that have been piled on in the last couple months. Has sentiment turned, Evelyn, watching the chatter on social media or when you speak to your friends uh, across the country? uh, How are people responding to these changes? I think there's certainly relief. I mean, we know that ever since let's say mid-November, things have been moving slowly in a encouraging direction, but it still comes down to, you know, is my building requiring people to still show their code today? Can I go to the gym? I mean, my swimming pool is still closed. So it's going to take time. And I think people are just really waiting for things to really change. The prospect of Protests. I mean, just seven days ago, there were citizens in Beijing and other in other cities uh, protesting, uh, lashing out against these restrictions. But from what you can gather, the, the idea of other demonstrations happening in the future slim to none or is still still possible. 
wouldn't rule it out completely, but again, we had really heightened security, especially in those areas where people were gathering for the protests. And I think part of the reason why we saw more of that public unrest was because in mid-November, we had the central government, just like today, saying, you know, we're going to cut quarantine times, things are going to get better. And then we saw infections surge and more communities suddenly locking down. And people were like, this is different from what we heard, you know, just what our hopes were just a couple of days ago. And so that discrepancy, I think, uh, combined with other things, all this frustration really spilled over into the protests that we saw. So now it's really up to the local management. How are they going to implement the new measures that we uh, heard about? Are people going to be able to travel without having to show all sorts of negative virus tests and health codes? I mean, that is going to really affect the sentiment and really remains to be seen because I don't think yeah. there's as much clarity on the official front of what all of these uh, measures, all these changes are aiming towards. So a step in the right direction, but still some uh, some confusion around how it's implemented. Evelyn Chang, thank you. We should point out Alibaba, some of these Chinese-listed names that typically respond positively to a China reopening. They're actually down today. Alibaba down nearly 5% in pre-market. Let's stick with China and a new exclusive data from the CNBC supply chain heat map showing some concerning trends when it comes to China's uh, supply chain problems. CNBC senior editor Lorianne Larocco joining me now. And, and Lorianne, what did you find? Uh, good morning, Seema. The exclusive data from the supply chain heat map providers are telling us that the manufacturing orders from China are down 40 percent. But even with this massive decrease in orders, logistics managers are concerned of the supply chain bottlenecks in January, which could stoke inflation. That's because with fewer orders, Chinese factories are forced to close two weeks earlier than usual for the Chinese Lunar New Year. That means the closures will start in early January. Seema? Uh, Lorianne, when did we start seeing this order slowdown from, from the U.S.? Did it start last month or has it been a couple, couple of months now? It's been for a couple of months now. We've been reporting on this, as you know, for a while. The precipitous drop in orders started back in August. October alone was down 11 percent year over year. Logistics managers are telling me normal demand is not expected to pick up until next summer. And so these early closures are a challenge for logistics managers because it creates a smaller window to get out their cargo and they have to fight for space on their vests on fewer vessels. So to add to this capacity constraint, I'm told that we're now seeing a slight pickup of orders. So that means there will be a future elbowing of vessel space, which could lead to higher container prices. Check out the supply chain heat map for China. Available vessel capacity is now tighter, and the COVID restrictions have slowed down the movement of goods on the roads. And Seema? so I guess, Lorianne, are we starting to see, we've been talking about companies diversifying supply chain, sort of creating new relationships with other countries across Asia. So are, would you say the lines are being redrawn here? They are definitely being redrawn. The U.S. has now imported more goods from Europe than China, according to Project 44. And that's a big shift from the, from, from the 2010s. Wow, that is really telling. Uh, Lorianne, thank you for, for giving us uh, this great report and some very interesting data there. That's Lorianne Larocco all over the supply chain. Coming up on the show, more on Europe's energy crisis and the race to replace fossil fuels. While Brian Sullivan is live in the Netherlands looking at the role that renewable energy just may play, Brian. 
That's right, and how to make money on it, Seema. We are CNBC after all. We talked about hydrogen a bit. We'll talk a little more about it later. But after the break, Baldwin Hess, Frontier Renewables, actually a former colleague of mine in a former life, building out and making money off of solar, off of wind. We'll talk about investing strategies and making some money off the energy transition. That is next, live from the Netherlands here on Worldwide Exchange. Let's get more now on Europe's energy crisis and the race to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy sources such as solar, wind and green hydrogen and whether it's feasible. Brian Sullivan back now from a Shell plant in the Netherlands. Brian, take it away. Thanks, Simi. Yeah, I mean, feasible and for how much money, right? I mean, that's kind of the knock on hydrogen as well, is that it's expensive and everything. But if you talk to companies like Shell or others, they're going to say, listen, we don't have an option. I mean, these are governments making rules about carbon emissions that we have to follow. And the only way to do that is to invest in renewables. We can have the debate about whether or not those things are right, but they're happening. So you might as well try to make some money on them. Let's bring in Baldwin Hess. He is the CEO of Frontier Renewables, actually a former colleague of mine. Baldwin, it's good to see you again from a long distance. You're now living and working in Spain, which is probably one of the main countries that got it right. I mean, you know, blessed, obviously, with a lot of sun some nice offshore wind and kind of that Iberian Peninsula. Where are you putting your investment dollars? Where do you see the best bang for the renewable buck? So I think I think we're seeing a perfect storm. First of all, Brian, great to see you. It looks like you get all the, the fun jobs there in the, in the field in, in the Netherlands. Um, I think we are in a perfect storm, if you will, in, in Europe. We obviously have a, a very positive policy backdrop, both on the EU level and on the national government level. But, you know, we are we have an energy security uh, issue in, in Europe. And really, the only way to solve that energy security issue is through renewables. They're the cheapest, the cleanest, the only really homegrown form of energy available on the continent. So, if, of course, as an investment manager focused on in the energy transition, we're heavily investing. We're investing half a billion euros. Uh, it's about one point five gigawatts of projects across wind, solar um, battery energy storage. We're obviously looking at green hydrogen as well. Uh, we really think that's going to be the medium to to long term solution in Europe and, and a huge uh, investment opportunity, probably the investment opportunity of a lifetime. Well, we OK, that's a big statement. I'll get into that. We hear this. They're cheaper, you know, per megawatt hour. Is that true without subsidies, though, Baldwin? I mean, because people jump in and say, no, 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 no. You, they're cheaper if you count it. You know, no subsidies. And then if you don't count the fact you got to bury the wind turbines in the ground for the rest of humanity, how are they less expensive? Well, you can look at a num- number of different ways. We can, First of all, uh, zero marginal cost. That's tough to compete with. Um, number two, even if you compare sort of an apples to apples levelized cost of energy calculation, I'm looking at charts where uh, large scale PV onshore wind are at or below any other form of, uh, of energy resource. Um, and even if you layer in um, long duration batteries, which is now the trend, you're extremely competitive. So, you know, we spoke 10 years ago about subsidies. Uh, they still exist in some markets in, in Spain, for instance, cause where I'm based. We're looking at a lot of merchant uh, plants at the moment. That's, that's basically the norm, PPAs, uh, very little to no subsidies behind them. So, yeah, we're, we're bullish. They're cost effective. They're green. And they're going to solve this problem. And isn't, though, the knock, you talked about battery storage, obviously maybe multi-tens of billion dollar opportunity there, a bunch of companies in the United States. 
getting into that long duration storage, but long duration is sort of in the eye of the beholder right now, isn't it, Baldwin? I mean, where are we? You make wind power, you kind of got to use it right away. Where do you see the battery opportunity going and how long duration can long duration actually be? So I, I think um, that's been the big knock on renewables. It's intermittent. It's crazy. Um, but we've moved a lot, a lot of um, ways since the 10 years ago when, when batteries started showing up. Uh, costs have come down. I think they're about 100 bucks per kilowatt hour now. Uh, we're looking at, you know, in the U.S., um, four-hour duration batteries. That's become best practice. It's also uh, now showing up in, in some plants in, in Europe. Um, so we're moving towards renewable energy that's dispatchable or semi-firm instead of completely intermittent. Obviously, we want to get to fully firm, fully dispatchable. Um, and that's a question of ramping up battery production, uh, implementing longer duration batteries in projects. Um, but we're starting to be able to, to firm and shape um, the energy. Um, and so I see hybridization of plants. I also see standalone storage. Um, if you ask me about my mm -hmm. view of the European market, um, you know, it's a combination of wind, solar and battery energy storage. Yeah, and those governments are pushing it here in the Netherlands, there in Spain. And you called it, Baldwin, the opportunity of a lifetime. And that's why CNBC is covered. Baldwin, Hess, good to see you again. Even though I can't actually see you, we'll stay in touch. Baldwin, thank you very much. You know, Seema, I think, I think Baldwin laid it out there, which yeah. is, listen, there's no perfect solution here. Is it hydrogen? No. Is it wind? Not always. Is it solar? It's kind of the, those cruise ships you cover, those, yeah. buffet, those giant buffets. You're right. That's kind of where we're going with energy. It's going to be that all-you-can-eat type approach. Yeah, got to just invest in all of it and see what, what works over time. Brian, great stuff. We will see you very soon. That is Brian Sullivan. Thanks. On deck here on Worldwide Exchange, Jenny Harrington joining us in just a moment. She'll tell us why she is still staying bullish on this market despite souring sentiment from some major CEOs that we heard from yesterday and the beaten-up tech name that is on her shopping list. Wex is back after this. Welcome back. A quick check on U.S. stock futures as the S&P tries to avoid its fifth straight losing session. Dow Jones currently down 51 points. Nasdaq is lower by 37 in pre-market trade. This as CEO sentiment across the country continues to turn sour. From the business roundtable on CNBC yesterday, Union Pacific CEO Lance Fritz, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon and Walmart CEO Doug McMillan all with less than rosy outlooks for the year ahead. Joining me now is Jenny Harrington, CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management. She is also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Jenny, good morning to you. I don't know about you. I, I actually like to underpromise and overdeliver. I'm wondering if you, if you think CEOs are trying to do the same here. Um, I don't know. I think, that, I think that they're probably being pretty genuine, at least with the group that you lined up. So, um, yeah, so my guess is they're actually trying to they're trying to take the Jay Powell route, which is pave the way, you know, pave the road and get people ready for it. Yeah, we're one week away from a Fed decision. We sort of got a look, though, right, from Fed Chair Jerome Powell, what he what his uh, outlook is on the economy. He even said last week, Jenny, that a soft landing is achievable. Knowing that, what changes are you making to your portfolio? Do you believe him? 
Okay, so that's such a great question. So the, the reality is, yeah, I believe him, but I don't make any changes to my portfolio based on what he says. This is a portfolio, and, and this goes back a little bit to your CEO question and, and the teaser that you gave, which is, you know, Jenny Harrington's still bullish on the market. So let me try and tie it all together with that. But the, the reality is, is no, I am not bullish on the market. As my partner Greg always says, and I think this is simple but profound, which is, hey, it's a big market, and you know what the best thing for us is? We don't need to buy the whole market. And what I think of, of what's going on now, and this is where I diverge in my portfolio or the Gilman Hill portfolios, which are, there's a dividend portfolio, also a discipline growth strategy, and I'll throw out some names there, but where I diverge between those CEOs' negative sentiment and my positivity, not on the market, but on the portfolios that we manage, is that exactly that, it's a big market and you don't need to choose. And none of the strategies that we manage are based on the next two weeks and what Jay Powell says. What we say is, okay, here's what we know from the Fed. Mm-hmm. Rates are going to be higher. We all know it's 50 basis points coming in December. I don't really know what his rhetoric is, whether that slings about the market in the short term, which it always seems to. Like, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, I care because it stinks to lose money in the short term, but as a long-term portfolio manager, we're just normalizing. And so I take all that and say, you know what? Here's what I actually care about, the fact that the risk-free rate now is higher than it was, and it will probably be higher for longer, and that adjusts the valuation work that we do. So then we need to be pickier and choosier. Mm. But getting back into those CEOs versus my you know, more, I don't know, upbeat outlook or my thought that even with, you know, if, if we get a soft landing, if we don't, you know, if we have a nasty recession, who knows if, you know, if it's easier, I think we can still make money. And that's because you can look at companies, and these are from our discipline growth strategy, but you can look at companies like Uber that are already down significantly and they're starting, they've become very competitive. And they're actually saying this year, hey, we need to make money. And you know what's going to happen? Their free cash flow is going to explode. They're going to create $2.2 billion of free cash flow in 2023. $4.4 billion, 4.4 billion in 2024. That gives them an 8% free cash flow yield in 2024. I want to buy that now and be well ahead of that. And I don't really care what Union Pacific and JP Morgan say. That's independent of what I see as the math here. So sort of and finding what these we're stocks saying is we're saying, that mm-hmm. can continue to do well in this environment. You mentioned Uber. I just want to get your, your thesis on JetBlue, which I know you've been a, yeah. a long-term owner of. Right. Um, so JetBlue's in a lot of ways the same kind of thing, and this is where there's just enormous asynchrony between different industries, um, different different companies, different sectors. So JetBlue, you know, we might say, okay, the consumer is having a tough time, you know, and that's where you hear Walmart. But you know what? They're spending hand over fist on travel, and JetBlue's been really, really good about being aggressive on pricing, which stinks for me because I wanted to go to Florida with my daughter a couple weeks ago. Tickets were like eight hundred dollars, so I didn't go. Um, but it's great for JetBlue. And so at JetBlue, you've got a stock that's trading at eight dollars a share. They're going to earn sixty-four cents. Sorry, sixty-two cents in twenty twenty-three. They're going to earn a dollar forty-eight in um, 2024, which puts them at a six times multiple, it's a little bit less actually, a six times multiple on 2024 earnings. Meanwhile, they were earning $2 a share before the pandemic. Do we think that they can get back there? Absolutely. So there's opportunities out there. And let's see, who was it? One of the CEOs yesterday said, hey, you know, if I didn't have to be on CNBC, recession would be in my in my dialect. Right, Scott, you right, right. right, yes, because you, you tuned in on, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's okay. really important is, 
is there are 7,000 publicly traded stocks out there. They are not all having the same experience at the same time. And I think we need to move away from the past decade of passive investing, index investing, the rising okay. tide raising all ships. And we need to appreciate that it's stock picking and active management right now. Within that, there is money to be made. Clearly. And you, you laid out some of the names there. Jenny, we always appreciate your time. That's Jenny Harrington. Thank you for joining us. And let me get back to Brian Sullivan now, who is live in the Netherlands with a look at what's ahead on this busy day, Brian. Yeah, and I want to have a little final thoughts quickly here. This is a live look at where your electricity in the U.K. is coming from right now, the U.K. It's 63 percent gas, nuclear or coal. Renewables, that left side, is getting bigger. But let's be realistic about where we still stand right now. And that's where Shell is coming in and working on this. And yes, I understand the NOx on hydrogen. Okay, here's the NOx on hydrogen. It's not an energy source. It's effectively a giant battery. It's expensive to produce, and it's hard, if not impossible, to ship outside of a pipeline. We get that. But Seema, the reality is governments here, and probably soon governments in the U.S. on a state level like California and others, are going to mandate, they're going to force certain changes. So that's why companies like Shell are investing billions all day on CNBC. We're going to talk about that transition where the opportunities are and not. We'll see you in a bit. Seema, thank you very much. The promise of clean fuels. Brian, great. We will see you very soon. And that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Squawk Box is next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. I won't let my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis symptoms define me. Emerge as you. In two clinical studies, Trimphia guselcumab, taken by injection, provided 90% clear skin at 16 weeks in 7 out of 10 adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In a study, nearly 7 out of 10 patients with 90% clear skin at 16 weeks were still clear at 5 years. At 1 year and thereafter, patients and healthcare providers knew that Trimphia was being used. This may have increased results. Results may vary. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Trimphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at Tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Tremphia.